My name is Hayley Jane Sims, and you are listening to Your Manchester Stories. Ben Elton is an award-winning British comedian, author, playwright, actor and director. His writing credits include The Young Ones, written with Rick Mail, and starring Rick and Aidan Edmondson, who are also both graduates of the University of Manchester. He's also written series two to four of Blackadder, over 16 novels, numerous plays and musicals, two feature films, and the comedy series Upstart Crow, which is soon to premiere in the West End. Ben has won many awards across television, theatre and publishing, including three BAFTAs, and he holds an honorary doctorate from the University of Manchester. His musical, We Will Rock You, showed in the West End for over 12 years and earned him one of his two Olivier Awards. Ben joins us during his stand-up comedy tour across the UK, his first in 15 years. Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm really happy to speak to you. We're going to come on to your career, Mm -hmm. but on this podcast, we like to capture the whole journey of our graduates. So would we be able to start with talking about where you grew up? Yes, I grew up in um, Catford in south-east London, uh, which uh, was quite a, I'd say it was quite a poor place. Uh, we were we were sort of middle class culturally. My father was a German refugee and his, his parent, his father had been a professor uh, in, uh, in Germany, but obviously because uh, they became Hitler refugees. Uh, my mother was from Cheshire, but uh, they both met at uh, UCL, University College London. Ended up anyway. My mum was teaching, and my dad was at Battersea College of Technology as a physicist. So we lived in Catford, uh, and I went to the local local state schools. And when I was about, uh, which was um, you know wonderful, we had a it was a terrific community. Very much changing. I can remember it changing, even while even as a little boy, that the 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 ethnic mix in our classes was changing very rapidly. Uh, I have a memory of my first Muslim friend, and he wasn't allowed to come to my house. There was a, they were quite separatist in their way, his family, but we were friends at school. And I remember when we left London um, in 1968, I had a leaving party for all my class, and my little mate Metin was only allowed to come previous. He didn't well, wasn't allowed to join the party. Um, I don't know why I tell that story now. I'm just trying to remember impressions of uh, mm. different times. Um, so we left London in 1968 because Battersea College of Technology became um, Surrey University under under Wilson's Yellow Brick University expansion in the 60s. A lot of new universities came about, and one of them was Surrey. And Battersea College of Technology Physics Department became part of Surrey University. And my father got his first chair, so he became professor of physics. And we moved to Guildford, uh, and that's where I was until I was 16. Uh, going to, in those days, we had segregated education. I passed 11 plus, so I went to a grammar school. Um, I would absolutely not, although I had great teachers and I had good fun, I wouldn't suggest, I, my experience of an ordinary, in inverted commas, grammar school is that absolutely I would have been preferred to have been at a comprehensive school as they are now. I've, I do not believe that uh, uh, there's any particular, having been through it, I do not feel I was either better educated or had a better experience for having been to. I'm sure if you go to Eton, you do, but the idea that every little town grammar school must be better than the secondary modern down the road and they'd be and, and not as good as a comrade. Anyway, it was a good school, good teachers, did a lot of drama there, very, very interested in... Uh, in drama, facilities very kind of poor because it was a grammar school. Uh, actually, had far better facilities where my mum taught at Park Barn Secondary Modern School. I was very jealous of their theatre and things. Um, 
I got involved in Amdram. It was a huge part of my life, amateur drama, amateur musicals. I played the Artful Dodger at school, and then I played it um, in amateur theatre locally. Uh, I I really lived and loved uh, amateur theatre, and I'm still a big supporter. I'm president of the Godalming Theatre Group to this day, some 50 years after my debut. Uh, so, um, and then I had a very special um lucky break in as much as I wanted to leave school at 16 I wanted to do my O-levels and leave because I wanted to get into theatre and I couldn't see anything in uh, doing my A-levels for me I wanted to be a writer I wanted to be an actor and I was very impatient I'd sort of fallen in love with the, the life of Noel Coward he was a boy actor and he became a writer just by banging on doors and anyway my parents I was pretty adamant that I didn't really want to stay at Godalming Grammar School as I say even though I, I was I'm very grateful to some of the teachers there not all um but my f my parents read an article in The Guardian about a visionary a new teacher, a man called Gordon Valens, who had set up the first A-level in theatre studies, first drama A-level. Uh, and this was well before, um, I mean, there, had, there was a drama, there were, Manchester was, had a drama department even then, but the idea that you would teach anyone but, un, but undergraduates theatre studies. Anyway, he'd done it, he'd persuaded South Warwickshire College. He'd set up this very interesting little department within a, just a local tech, South Warwickshire College of Further Education. There was a big catering department, a big engineering department, and this tiny little theatre studies department. Um, and um, my dad said, well, if you can get into that, would you be interested? And I, and I really loved the idea. You did your ordinary A-levels. I did history and English, but then a theatre studies A-level. And then this guy, Gordon Valens, who I met last night. I'm in Manchester today. Last night I played Warwick, and my inspiring tutor, Gordon, was in the audience. He's a very elderly man now, but still going strong. Um, he did wonderful things. He'd get, you know, if, if we were doing Lear and it was if it was raining, he'd make us all rush out into the rain and do the how 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 speech. And he was very inspiring for for kids. And um, so I lived away from home from sixteen. I lived in a caravan and I lived in um, in digs. Uh, very happy time. I wrote my first plays, put them on with other students, um, did a lot of street theatre. I just became a full time writer, even though I was effectively a school kid. And I've been a full time writer ever since. And because of my parents sort of pushing me towards that, I very soon, my dad, I remember him saying, if you want to be a writer, you'd better do some reading. And there's no way you're going to find better better suggestions at reading than studying at university. So, uh, you know, by then I knew I didn't want to be an actor. So I, I recognised that that had been, mum and dad had been right and that I should stay in education as long as I could. And I applied for the gold standard of drama teaching, which was Manchester. It was a very, it was a well-known course even then in 1977 when I applied, 76 I applied. Am I, is this is something of a monologue, are you happy with this? Yeah, yeah. more than happy. Um, so, um, so I applied to, and I applied to Hull and to Bristol I think had one then, was it? Yes. Um, and did that thing of going around and going to interviews and I remember Hull had the most fantastic theatre really wonderful but I mean, bless them I'm sure they've changed their mind now. but I remember saying oh I can't wait I write plays I've been putting on plays in our you know in our little studio space at my A-level college I'd really love to get in here and they said oh well you, we don't students don't do productions in here they, they can act in but they're all directed by other professionals or by the tutors and I remember thinking I don't want to come here I want to I'm, I want a place that's um, that I can work in and and uh, and of course, Manchester was actually quite down and dowdy. They had the Stephen Joseph Studio. That was their entire facility, which was this old church, which was pretty, pretty 
run down. There were health hazards. They're talking about asbestos. I remember when we arrived, there was a campaign to sort of have it upgraded. It never happened. I wrote a piece of street theatre uh, to try and get uh, to, to, to to sort of agitate to upgrade our health and safety in the in the Stephen Jersey Theatre. But of course, Manchester had these wonderful studio nights every week. Students were encouraged to put on their own stuff. And when I went to my interview, I was told about this and I knew that this was the place I wanted to go and I was really lucky. I got, in those days offers were low, I got offered a B, a B and a C because they didn't matriculate my theatre studies A-level. Funnily enough, Manchester Drama Department, it was so new, they didn't, they didn't recognise it as an A-level. Um, and But they let me in on a B in English and a C in History, which I was very lucky to get and happy to get in. You wouldn't get in in those, <laughs> those grades anymore, I can tell you. Um, and... Uh, and so I came up here on a Honda 50 in, in, in September 1975. I, I rode from Guildford on a Honda 50 to Manchester on my own. Kids didn't get dropped off by their parents in those days. There were no parents. All your stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> we sent it up on a train. A trunk had arrived, you know, and some other kid helped me carry it up to my room. I was in digs running a few weeks because I'd already lived on my own for two years. Mm. I soon got out and and first went into a, just a bed sit, but... Do you remember where it was? Yeah, out in Didsbury. Didsbury. And, uh, of course, um, I got to know some of the guys, Rick and Aid, and some of the other people who were sort of into comedy and performance. And there was a couple of houses, which were, they weren't the young one's house. But there was there was some similarities. I mean, students, particularly, I think, maybe all, all, all male student houses are pretty scummy. Uh, and so it was quite young onesy in a way. You yeah. know, I remember famously Aid did once ride his... His Honda, his I was about to ask you about that because I yeah. read that earlier. He did do it, yeah. He rode his bike up the stairs once. We weren't we weren't wild in any sense, an aggressive sort of way. Mm. We weren't blokey in that way at all. Um, but we were, you know, we liked to drink and we liked to party and, and, and we were all of us desperately wanting to be comic actors. Everyone, we were into comedy, all of them. And uh, anyway, so I came to Manchester and wrote and wrote and wrote and put on numerous plays at the Stephen Jesus studio and got involved in the Amdrams and his Manchester Umbrella I don't think it is anymore but Manchester Umbrella was the student theatre company the student amateur so anyone could be in it yeah. but of course a lot of drama students were in it some looked down on it because of course you had non-drama students in it uh, I loved it and did two Edinburgh seasons with it and um, Tony um, oh my god I've forgotten his surname Tony who's a year above me became director of Birmingham I think um, oh well anyway there were a lot of great people there that time. Anyway, you should ask me a question. I'm just sort of no, it's, it's really interesting. things out of the air. You mentioned Rick and Aid mm. and, and working with them. Did you have a sense that you were creating or there was a, a relationship forming that would... No, out? not at the time. I didn't know Aid really at all. I knew of him. He was, seemed quite scary to me. Of course, I've since learned that he's not at all. He's one of my very, very closest friends to this day and always will be. Um, but I wasn't friends with him at university. We were, you know, we were friendly. But Rick was more outward going. I think Rick, I first got to know Rick because I think he was, you know, he was sniffing around looking at the first year girls, you know, seeing seeing who'd arrived this year and, you know, generally taking a benign third year interest, shall we say. Not in a horrible way, but, you know, Rick was very gregarious and, you know, and uh, he very quickly, I recognised in me a kindred comic soul. He, We became friends almost immediately. It was actually the the little bit of ad street theatre I wrote about our studio that he thought was so funny, the idea that anyone would be that sort of farty and that enthusiastic to actually sort of do a bit of agitprop about our own our own dire facilities. Uh, but I'd done a lot of that when I was at 
at Stratford, Warwickshire College. It was in Stratford on Avon actually, but it was South Warwickshire College. Um, and I, I, I think I wrote good jokes even then, and I think he recognised that, and and we became, we became very friendly in a sort of fresher third year way. He, it was a joke. I was I was hello fresher. He always pretended he didn't know my name and called me fresher. But we, we and I admired him enormously. Um, he was so magical. Um, he had immense star quality. I mean, everybody knew it then. He, he was immensely charismatic. And he and Aid and one or two of the other third years put on a little comedy review for the first years when we first arrived in our first week. And I remember very clearly um, Rick doing this kind of opening monologue as if we all knew he was a superstar. Uh, and it was fantastically confident and wonderfully sexy. He was hugely, you didn't have to be either a straight girl or a gay guy to find him sexy. I'm neither, and I, I, I found him incredibly attractive um, and, and so compelling, a warm and welcoming comic personality. First, he did the first time I ever heard that well-known comic trope now, which is to, uh, if you either are a wanker or if you're pretending to be a wanker, you refer to yourself in the, th in the third person, like the Donald, like Donald Trump, you know, the Donald, like there's an old, it's a well-known way to be an absolute arsehole is to sort of refer, you know, Ben, don't do this stuff. You know, you're not going to get that from the Ben, you know. Um, and the first time I ever heard anybody do that, I think Rick invented it. He said, hi, I, uh, I'm the Rick, uh, I'm the Rick, you know, and, and he sort of referred to, and it was a very, it was just hilarious. I mean, I can remember weeping with laughter at this guy pretending to be a superstar, even though he was just another scummy student in jeans and a great coat. Um, which is what we all wore in those days. Uh, so yeah, I remember Rick and I became friends, and, and I, I knew Aid a bit. And then he and he and Aid graduated, and went their separate ways, and got both got jobs in factories, but kept in touch and tried to keep their 20th Century Coyote double act going, and did their best in little bits of pub and here and there. And they got them. They managed to get a season together in Edinburgh. God knows how they did it. Paid for the deposit on all. And I'd gone up with Manchester Umbrella with my little slate of plays. I had two plays on. I wrote a little musical and a little and a, and a comic three-act comic play. And we put them on in Edinburgh in 1979. And Rick and Aid came to see old mates from Manchester. And Rick and I again sort of got got you know got close. And you know he loved my play and thought it was funny. And um, and because of that, when come when I graduated and Rick and Aid had already started to penetrate what was the burgeoning London alternative scene, well, there was only like six or seven people in it at that point, and I became the seventh or eighth because uh, Rick, Rick's, I was I was mates with Rick and beginning to get proper mates with Aid by that time, and and they um they were doing this thing, and I went and saw them in a couple of pubs, and I thought, that's brilliant, and Rick said, you've got to write me some stuff, come on, I need some stuff, I can't do gags well, I can, but I don't write them, you've got to do it. And obviously, I would love to write for Rick. I really, I sort of hero-worshipped him at the time. Mm. Um, and anyway, very shortly after that, um, Paul Jackson, went, uh, the BBC producer, went to Rick, and I said, if you can come up with something, I'll pitch it to the BBC, and, and, and Rick came to me and said, you know, I need a I need a writer. I mean, we've got a lot of good ideas. He and his girlfriend Lisa at the time um, had great ideas, but you know, they, to my good fortune, Rick recognised that there was a, a writing talent missing, and and he saw it in me. Is that where the young ones came from? That's where the young ones came from. And I separately at that point, because I was on the dole, thought I'm 
at the very least as able to be as good a comedian as anyone doing this at the time. Not comic clown like Rick. I never thought I was funny like Rick or Ray. But the ones doing monologues, and there weren't many, but I thought, I can do this. I certainly got better material. Um, and so even though I had never intended to be a stand-up comedian, I very quickly thought, oh, while I, we're waiting for the young ones, which took a very long time in, in youth terms, it took a year. Mm. Um, that's no time at all, actually. I became a comedian. I wrote myself a little act and started doing it myself. It's interesting that you said earlier that you wanted to be an actor and then you decided that wasn't mm. necessarily for you. But then this other form of performing kind of took mm. took you kind of stand up. Yeah. Like... To a lot of people, that it's a different kind of acting. Well, that, no, but there's, you see, it's not acting at all for me. It's mm. all about the material. I've never... I, I mean, I can act a little bit, you know. I mean, I you know, I can vaguely do it. and But I've never had any... I've never had a performance ego. I've got a writing ego. I want I want to be heard, and I want to be understood. But in all the... I mean, hundred, the many, many plays I put on at university, many, and sketches, and God knows, I never put myself in any of them. You know, I wanted to find good actors to do, I wanted the best version of my lines. Um, and I continued to not put myself in stuff. It was Rick who said, you've got to be in The Young Ones, because that little bit nosing around that I do in the first episode of The Young Ones, the Pistek of Youth TV, that, that was part of my act. What I did as a stand-up, when I invented myself as a stand-up, having never had any intention of ever being a stand-up comedian, I did it, A, to earn a living, but principally to um, to advertise my wares, to say, here, I'd written a number of plays, as you know, 20 plays in the last couple. I was sent, The last thing I did as a postgraduate here was a play about Mussolini, and I was sending it off to, you know, all the usual places and getting all the usual inevitable rejection letters because they get a lot of unsolicited plays sent to them. And during that period, in January, February, March 1980, I am... Um, no, 81, 1981, I graduated in 80. Um, I, I thought, well, no-one's going to perform my plays, so I'll perform my own material. And I started writing myself comic monologues. But I was only doing it as, an, as, an, as a writer. And for years afterwards, I was my intention, the moment I was firmly established, that I would never do it again. But I became, in my own way, good at it. I, I, I did something which I still think was, was, was unusual, and, and, well, it was unique to me in as, in as much as only I could do it. It was my material. Mm. I wrote a lot for other people, writ particularly. But I still think what I do is unusual. I'm doing it again for the first time in 15 years right now at the age of 60. Because, you know, people encourage me to. My wife says, you know, what you do as a stand-up and what you've always done as a stand-up isn't, isn't common. Kind of comedy of ideas, but driven by principle. I'm always very clear to make my point that I speak from a point of view on stage. I don't say they're all wankers. I don't say, oh, everything's even. Mm. I don't believe that. I, I speak my truth comedically, and I've always done so. So it's nothing to do with acting. It's purely and simply about the material. And, and for some reason, I seem to be the best person to deliver my material, the obvious reason being it's my truth. Yeah. And so anybody else would have to act it. And is there a difference between when the last time that you did stand-up whatever the world was like then and the world that is now, presuming there might be like a political element to what you're talking about or anything like that, mm. do you have to take any different approach? Has things moved along at all? No, I mean, the world's changed a lot. It's far, far more terrifying and far more worrying. I thought I was performing in the most divisive decade that I would ever live through, which was the 80s. 
first gig I ever did, I could smell Brixton burning as the black community rose up against what they quite rightly saw as a as a, as, a, as, a, as racist policing. And and suddenly St Paul's and Toxteth exploded. That was in 1981. By 1984, we had Thatcher literally declaring war on the trade union movement and using the police as her army. We had the miners' strike all the way through to the poll tax in the late 80s. It was an incredibly divided and, and violent decade. And... Uh, I did gigs throughout, and in never in any time did I ever feel personally threatened. I played Nottingham during the miners' strike, and you may remember, or you won't remember, you're too young, but the, the Nottinghamshire miners sided with Thatcher and formed an anti-NUM union. Um, and yet I played there, and although I had some hostility, I never f- met, felt in any way intimidated. This tour, uh, I did a gig, and I had a, I had what I, I think is a potentially violent intervention from somebody who presumed I was some kind of elitist remainer. I wasn't, and I said nothing of the sort. I talk about it on stage, but it was pretty horrible. Um, I think the Brexit thing, because of the, and I'll be very clear about this, because of the current Conservative leadership's heinous, heinous um, abdication of moral responsibility in weaponising the language of a war they never fought against a Europe which is actually actively organising against any such war happening again. The fact that the Leave Brigade have weaponised World War II language of saboteurs and betrayers and and um, collaborators and surrenderers um, is extremely dangerous. And when he was accused, Boris Johnson was accused by some MPs from all sides of the House of making the world a more dangerous place, he said he thought it was humbug. Well, if he'd been on the stage when I was on the stage uh, facing the violent verbal assault I faced, which looked extremely likely to turn properly violent until the stewards arrived, for no provocation whatsoever. I hadn't even said I was a Remainer. He just presumed I was. So somebody just bought a ticket to your show. Yeah, I know. He, I know. It was. I know. I don't think he. No, I think Something the fact that I'd been going on about the undermining of democracy had made him think that meant that somehow I was pro-Remain. Now I did vote Remain, but I think there were very good reasons for for both sides. I don't think a single one of them was ever voiced during the actual campaign. It was the most banal, anti-democratic. Um, horror of, a, of an insult to democracy I've ever witnessed. But he presumed that because I was slagging off Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson's effort to distance Parliament, who are the people, from the people, whoever they may fucking be. I've never met the people. I've only met people, and they're all different. Um, anyway, look, this is a big... This is, I deal with it on stage, but the point was he'd heard something I hadn't said because he didn't been encouraged to presume that anybody who sees the slightest nuance in the immense complexity of the idea that we have to, that we're leaving Europe must be a surrender monkey and a latte drinking elitist and um, his fury because clearly he he'd obviously lost his job his life circumstances were obviously horrendous and I have enormous sympathy for him and nothing but utter contempt from the bottom of my loathing soul for the likes of Boris Johnson who weaponise people's suffering and the, and the hardships they face for the um, destruction of our democratic principles and the furtherance of their own despicable entitlement and personal career ambitions. I don't think there's ever been a time when we've had a lower quality of conservative politician, and I say that fully. I don't think Corbyn is great. 
but uh, I do think he at least follows a political principle quite clearly. Boris Johnson follows only his own venal self-entitlement. But anyway, we're off on we're on a different subject now. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad it's not put you off for that experience that happens. Oh yeah, no. The, as a stand-up, apart from the fact that the country feels angrier. And I feel the stakes are higher, and I think the existential threat of climate change is making it harder to be a genuine optimist, which is what I've always been. Um, it's the same. It's the same. I'm doing the same job, and, and people are saying, oh, you're back, and you've still got it, and you're doing what you do. Yeah, it's the same. But I think the world's a, a sadder place even than when I thought it was pretty damn sad. But fighting Thatcher over the trade union principle of organised labour is a civilised thing to do. I admire Mrs Thatcher. She was a woman of enormous principle. Um, I loathe the principles that she had, and I disagree with almost everything that she did and said. But she did it because she believed it. And she pursued it courageously, even against immense lack of popularity at times. And for that, you have to give her credit. We see no such dignity of principle in the current leadership so yeah i think these are harder times to be it's harder to be satirical because the likes of trump and johnson are self-satirizing they are it's a it's a bit of a cliche to say that now but they are they, they, we are post shame i mean the, the fact that they are literally prepared to simply change their truth mid-sentence change their lies mid-sentence uh and and take any position at any point to court the shortest termist point score makes it very very hard i mean they say they're bringing back spitting image how the fuck could, what the fuck i mean what puff puppet could possibly do justice to donald trump or boris johnson either physically or intellectually there is no depth of satirical contempt that they could mold in latex and farty script writers like me trying to be terribly clever about political hypocrisy. There's nothing we could write or they could mould that could possibly do justice to the nightmare reality of, uh, of Western leadership, and well, of American and, and British leadership at the moment. So, yeah, it's harder to be directly satirical, but I find a way. <laughs> do, you, do you find, like, the, the breadth of your work, because you do so many different things and, you know, you've got novels out and different things like that, that that's almost like an, an antidote for people, in a way, to get away from the scary political stuff? I think people are glad to hear... Pe some people have been kind enough to say and tweet that, you know, it was great to hear somebody sort of speaking stuff that they feel but hadn't particularly articulated, and clearly there's this bloke I mentioned who clearly felt exactly the opposite, although I can assure you he really hadn't been listening um, because what he thinks I said, I did not say. Um, as I say, I actually think there are good reasons for not being in Europe. I think there are probably, on balance, better reasons for being in Europe, and that's why I voted Remain. But uh, I think there are good left, there are good socialist reasons for rejecting um, aspects of the European Union. It is a businessman's club. It's just a more benign businessman's club than the United States or the dictatorships of Putin and and China. Anyway, I don't know why I'm talking about Europe. No, so stand up. No, I don't find it an antidote to anything. I just do what I... I, I follow my nose as I've always done. I just do the next thing I feel like doing. And I felt after 15 years like going back on the road, I'm slightly regretting it now because I'm doing 80 dates in almost <laughs> as many days, which is a bit much. Do you find that you have... Um just like a head full of ideas because you do so much varied stuff from like novel writing musicals stand up everything do you 
is you just constantly swimming with ideas in your head or do you just no i think you have to pursue an idea i think the 99 percent perspiration and 10 percent inspiration is is kind of there's a lot of truth in it like any cliche mm. you have to work hard to find where you're going you can't I, I think inspiration only really strikes unlooked for when you're young. I think when I was young, things did really drop into my head. And I think um, when your mind is really open and you're young you, and you don't really know who or what you are, but as you begin to learn who or what you are and the limits of what you've got to offer, you start to learn how to pursue that inspiration. Because inspiration will always be entirely mysterious. Woody Allen spoke for all writers when he said, when I write a joke, I'm hearing it for the first time. There's no doubt about it. At the point when the rubber hits the road, the pen hits the page, you just as with a brush stroke, you don't know what it'll look like. There's, there's no doubt about that. You have to get onto that mythical role. You have to allow yourself to free form. Every, every act of creativity is free formed. This conversation is free formed. You know, the famous Foster quote, I, how can I tell you what I think till I've heard what I have to say? So, you know, anyone who doodles in the corner of an exercise book is free-forming. It's all free-forming, but you have to, and as you become a professional at it, you have to work hard. You have to sit and face the bank page and accept that writer's block is a part of the process. I don't suffer it much, but that's because I'm lucky enough to be able to get up and forget about it for a day or two because I, I've, you know, I've got financial security and... Also, I'm a very, I have a lot of thoughts, but it's not like they're all swimming around in my head. I have to pursue them. I have mm. to look for them. Sometimes things drop into my mind. <laughs> Do you, um, so you, at the moment you're kind of knee deep in your tour. Have you thought about what you would like to do beyond that or are you very much living in the moment for? Well, at the time? moment I'm living in the moment because it is, I mean, you always tell yourself you're going to be able to write on the road, you know, write a novel while, you know, in the car and things. It's very, very hard when you've got a show to do each evening, particularly if it's only you. And I do like two and a quarter hours and I talk very quickly. So it's a lot, it's quite draining. So the, the sort of, you know, you always kid yourself, oh, I'm gone three months, I'll probably come back with a novel or something. But I, that's not really likely to happen. But I have got, um, I've actually got things that are coming out, the upstart crow, play I've written I'm not directing it so we're casting that at the moment so I'm able to, to look at tapes and things and because um, it's not all the old gang um, so the upstart crow play will uh, open in February uh, with David Mitchell in the lead again of course um, and I have one or two other projects vaguely in development it's harder now for me I mean and rightly so I can't get on the telly for instance and haven't been able to for nearly 20 years and that's okay. Uh, you know, they have only so much space and there's a lot of people want those gigs and I had an incredible run. In the 80s and 90s, I could pretty much go to the BBC and say what I wanted. I want to do a stand-up show. I want to put on a sitcom. That stopped very suddenly. Um, 98 was my last show and by 99, I couldn't get a gig. And I, I, I think that's fine. The fact that there's people who want to see me isn't the only consideration, particularly for the BBC, who are a public service broadcaster. They have a job to seek out new talent and they have to develop. So, you know, even Morecambe and Wires were only at the very top for seven or eight years, 72 to 79. You know, people think of these greats as if they were there around forever. They weren't. I mean, Tommy Cooper, maybe 15 years at the top, you know, many, many years struggling and then a few years fading away. 
Um, I haven't faded away, but in terms of TV, I'm very lucky. I'm a writer, principally, mm -hmm. so I don't need the telly exposure to work. But if when I, that's a lucky, I don't because I I wouldn't have got it for the last twenty years. And and as I say, I, I'm very I'm very happy with that. I've met a lot of comics who were bitter that they can't get a gig on the telly anymore. But the truth is, there's there's thousands of people want that gig, thousands, and they have to. You know, they have to keep an eye on youth, you know. Young people need a break. I certainly got a break. I got the best possible break on earth. At 21, I was writing a BBC sitcom. It was beyond imagination. Yeah, that might, I guess, if that happened mm. again now, would that happen again to you if you were starting out afresh now? I wonder. Uh, I don't think you could make quite such an impact because nothing does because there's so many platforms now. Mm. Um, I mean, sure, you get stuff that's much celebrated, like the wonderful flea bag or whatever, but they're not really in the culture in the way things like Fools and Horses or the young ones or the Blackadder were because, of course, there was only two or three channels. Mm -hmm. So everyone was watching it, granny and kids, you know. Um, so I'm not quite sure there could ever be a time where I don't think there'll ever be another Beatles because I don't think the single cultural focus is possible anymore for an entire world to fall properly in love with one thing and for everybody to understand it together. I mean, there are acts that have sold more, well, I don't know if it's sold more records, but, you know, they're, they're very, very big. But they're still niche. Jay-Z is niche. Rihanna is niche. Rihanna is niche. Because they're big fucking niches, <laughs> but they're still niche. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know much about them. You know, the Kardashians, they're the biggest niche of all, because I've never I've watched one episode out of, in, you know, because I thought I had to, and that's it. Mm. I know nothing of them. I don't. I'm, I know nothing of their social media presence. I mean, I know enough to know. And yet, they're one of the biggest things on earth. There'll never be another Beatles. There can't be. And I don't think there'll be another Morgan Wise Christmas show. There just can't be because there's only two. There were only three channels when that happened. So I was very, very lucky. I think if you were born, if you're a baby, but it's pretty well known. If you're a baby boomer, you got the lottery ticket. You know, you you things were getting better. More money was being spent. Education was expanding, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There were jobs if you wanted them, etc. I was very lucky. Ben, we have to let you go, so we're going to ask the last question. Mm. Which Sorry, is to, I've been, we, I've we ask, on. No, no, it's been great. Mm. We ask this to everybody, so we're going to give you access to our fictional time machine, mm. and we'd like to ask you where in Manchester, in what time would you choose to go? Well, I suppose I could... Well, gosh, that's... I, you, I didn't know this was coming. Um, I'd love to go back just to hang out for a minute or two in the Manchester I knew, because it was one of the most... I mean, the most special possible... I mean, those three years were like a lifetime to me. I mean, my daughter's about to graduate next year. I, I, I thought she'd only just arrived. I mean, not in Manchester, but, you know, we look back, the, the years concertina, they, 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 they're gone in an instant. But my three years in Manchester from 1977 to 1980, not great years for Manchester. Um, there was a cop called James Anderson who was called God's Cop, and he had that city bolted down. There were no gigs, nothing opened beyond 10.30, Manchester was dead in the evenings. And kids used to try and get into the student union to see the bands we could see because we were students. I mean, obviously it was all about happening. When James Anderton went, I mean, most people don't remember this anymore, but Google him. It's astonishing, this new, uh, this evangelistic Christian chief constable fucked up Manchester for at least a decade um, and ruined it for young people. Um, but I had the most wonderful time. So I think I'd go back just to 
smell the air and look at the faces uh, of what was a golden, golden time in my life. Being part of Manchester University Drama Department, being part of Manchester University amateur drama scene, which was very vibrant in those days. We always took a big programme to Edinburgh of shows, and I became a big part of that during my time. And what I would do, if I could go back to my youth in Manchester, is when I went and saw bands at the Student Union, that building that meant so much to me, we rehearsed there, that was an incredible, it was a hub of my life on Oxford Road, still there, that building, was my the hub of my life, that and the Juicy Arms pub behind the old Stephen Joseph studio. I lived the drama department and the drama world at Manchester, and I adored it. And every now and then I'd get to go and see a band. I saw Slade, I saw, who were already old, out of fashion, but I love them. I saw Talking Heads, I saw Dire Straits, I saw Susie and the Banshees. And every time there'd always be Manchester kids who weren't students trying to get in. Can you sign us in? Can you sign us in? Can you get us in? I'll buy a ticket. And of course, we were very wary of that because we were constantly being warned. If one anybody steals anything or ruins anything, you will be responsible if you sign them in. Once or twice I did sign kids in, but on the whole, one didn't. You're just sort of scared, supposing they, you know, whatever, I'm responsible for them. I don't know these people. But it felt terrible that we as middle-class farties, most of us were southerners, could see talking heads in Manchester, and Manchester kids couldn't because there were no gigs because of James Anderton. Mm. So I'd go back and I'd sign a few kids in to see <laughs> some of the gigs. Fantastic. Great answer. Ben, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, we got very political. What does this go out on? I mean, where does it go? A special thanks to our colleagues Tom Fern, Cheyenne Brown and Lucy Wainwright for all your support during this series. From your hosts here at Your Manchester Stories, we would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to our first series. We look forward to bringing you new stories in 2020. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Hayley Jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions. <laughs>